Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to the 487th edition of the Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show, and I'm your host Daniel Feuerstein. We are going to move on from the pleasantries as we're going to get into the business right now. As everybody has seen through social media on Concacaf's website, the Concacaf Champions League will be back. They will be played between the dates of December 15th through the 22nd. That man who has been analyzing these games ever since it got started, all the way back this past February. My good friend Devin Kerr, ESPN, CONCACAF analyst uh, for the CONCACAF Champions League, which will be seen back again on all major Fox network stations, Fox 1, Fox Sports 1, and Fox Sports 2. Devin, good evening. Uh, Happy news to see that the Champions League will be back in CONCACAF as we have unfinished business. Of course, it was paused due to the pandemic of the coronavirus. We're back, baby. Can't freaking wait. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a long time coming, right? It, it seems like, and I feel like everybody could say this about kind of 2020 and the way things have gone on. Doesn't like all of those matches, January, February, March, doesn't that seem like a decade ago to you? I mean, I think back and look at it and I just go, wow. I mean, I, I, I can remember driving to, and I think I've told you this story before. I can remember driving to the studio for the LAFC Cruz Azul game and texting you being like, yeah, this isn't happening. And just kind of since then, the world is what it is, but super excited to be back. And it's going to be real interesting to see how these things play out. I think so too. And I mean, the weird thing about this one is you have three of the four quarterfinal matches already played their first leg. Now you've got everyone ready to play a second leg because those three games, they count for the aggregate, but except for LAFC and Cruz Azul, like you said, they're only going to play one and done. I mean, I never, I mean, we've seen, of course, UEFA Champions League having single matches because they were playing in a neutral event and a neutral, excuse me, a neutral site. It looks like this might be the same thing here. Yeah. So let me get my ducks in a row because I've been in, in fatherhood territory as you and I were talking about coming in. Has CONCACAF, and I can't even believe I'm saying this on air, but it's okay because, again, I've, I've been out of the game for the past couple of days. They have not officially released where this is going to be, correct? Okay. So I'm not going to spill the beans. I'm not going to spill the beans. Um, mm-hmm. I, 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 mm-hmm. I would venture to say that this is going to be in a predetermined neutral location. A, a lot of people have a really mm-hmm. good idea of where it's going to be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, follow the breadcrumbs there, if you will, but – yeah, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's the end of the world going to single leg. I kind of like it, especially given all the variables that you have to maneuver in 2020. I don't mind it in general, to be fair. When you look at some of the matchups, does it benefit some teams than others? Absolutely. But then there's certain matches like the Atlanta United Club America game where, you know, earlier on this spring, there's the 3-0 drubbing, and all of a sudden you go, wow, is there any chance that Atlanta United can come back from this? Well, I'm pretty sure given the way that the season has gone on for them in MLS domestic schedule, we know that that answer is a no. You know, they, they bowed out of MLS dramatically. And when I mean dramatically, 
They threw their name out of the hat a long time ago. So I don't think that's a concern for that game whatsoever. Club America, once again, another favorite. You know, they've only lost three games in 2020. Um, you're basically going all the way back to the start of the Champions League for that. Now, two of them are recent, and I understand it, but, but I still think that that's not an issue whatsoever. Sitting on a 3 nothing lead, that, that's an easy advancement for them. They basically show up, play their youngsters, and, and they'll be just fine, and they could still get a result. Um, I think when you look at some of the other games, that's where my head starts to turn a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. LAFC. Uh, let's start here, for actually. Every single year coming into the Champions League, is it not the question of, well, what if they move this to a different time of the year? What if MLS was in full swing? How does the form look? Because usually we're making the argument that these teams are coming out of preseason, if not still in preseason, trying to find a way to get results, correct? Very, very true, yes. That's not the case anymore. You are literally an MLS team outside of Atlanta United. Everybody's headed into postseason play. Some teams 100% in better form than others. You know, Montreal Impact, stumbling is probably putting it nicely, the way that they, they got themselves into the postseason, getting a couple of results here and there. But otherwise, not looking good doing it, looking at different formations, trying to find the right personnel. Thierry Henry still looking for the footing that, you know, we felt like in Champions League early on this season, maybe that would be good for them, but still searching for that. And I think 2021 could, could definitely be a different year for them. But focusing on the task at hand, they're down 2-1 against an Olympia squad that is, to be honest, like, Daniel, when I look at the game itself, uh, Thierry Henry has his hands full. Their back line is a mess. Louis Banks, solid, but everybody else has really been struggling. Uh, mentioned, you know, they started the year in a three. They've gone to a four. It's been all over. The disciplinary issues have really been a problem for them, and so you lack chemistry. The results all over the map. That's a real difficult thing. I mean, basically, it's Kyoto and, and Boyan, and that's it. Um, Victor Wanyama, although good, is aging and everything around him. It, it is a limp, to say it politely, for them getting in to the playoffs, yet alone the fact that they're going to get in the Champions League. But remember, the whole argument coming into this was the fact that all of these teams are still playing. Some of these Mexican squads are going to have close to a month off before they hit the field again. Now, I get it. They're very deep, and there's a lot going on there. But that's the argument we've made the entire time, where if the time off is reversed, how does the fortune fame the bull? LAFC like their chances. My only concern about LAFC is keeping everybody healthy. Because of the fact that you get everybody back, we have, you know, Carlos Vela scored over the weekend, um, coming back from injury for sure. Latif Blessing looks like he's good, good form in the middle. Uh, I still think Ken Vermeer in goal is suspect. You know, that, that was a question coming in. Um, called him out a little bit. Diego Rossi gets the golden boot. But you get the players back. Can you keep that form, especially considering the fact that they're probably going to lose four to, or three, excuse me, to international duty? Do they stay healthy there? Do they continue playing in terms of getting results in postseason play? And then what does it look like come the matchup versus Cruz Azul? I think that one, given the fact that it's the single leg, is probably the most interesting. However, I don't want people to sleep on the NYCFC Seagrass game. NYCFC for me is, I, I still think it's getting better and better. When you look at everything they brought to the table, Maxi Morales, uh, Tati Castellanos, the two of them together, I think Castellanos is probably playing better than Hebert, in, in my opinion. Um, their little synchronicity that they've created up top, their relationship has been fantastic. Tinnerholm on the back line could have easily 
um, for my money. Now, I don't want to say he wins Defender of the Year, but, you know, his name is in the mix for sure. Definitely in the, in the best 11. You know, Matriza gone on loan overseas. Uh, Keaton Parks, his quality, I think, is probably understated in the midfield. His ability to just retain the ball. And if you watch him, he's not looking to be that magnificent ball distributor going forward, right? It's the retention of it. It's the little touches here and there to just help usher this thing forward. And he does what he needs to do. Um, Max Chanel on the back line has been fantastic. I think Johnson's distribution is questionable at times. Um, I, I don't think that their issue is going to be creating in the final third, Daniel. I think for them it's going to be defensively, can they step up to the plate when need be? Because when you look at all of the pieces that are Tigres, regardless of the fact of where they, where, you know, where they finish in, in the game, Mackey, I still think that that team, Tigres, can create a bunch their chemistry was questionable early on this season. I would make the same argument now. I would say that NYCFC is better than the team that Tigre saw all the way back when, end of February, beginning of March. But defensively, I'm still wondering, as good as they have been, can they be great? Because I think if NYCFC can be great, that could be your MLS team to make a run at this thing. And LAFC, I mean, obviously you got uh, Bradley Wright Phillips there instead of uh, Diadama. Uh, we've seen his resurgence since his uh, um, surgery, and uh, he's already scored, I think, over at least 10 goals or more this year uh, with his first year at LAFC. I mean, I would like to think, and him being a veteran in this CONCACAF Champions League, what he was able to do, especially in that 2018 run where, unfortunately, he couldn't get anything in the uh, semifinals against uh, Guadalajara. I think he could be a wild card uh, to throw into the monkey wrench for Cruz Azul in that one match. Yeah, I, I think that's a good look for sure. I think the other thing you have to look at with, with BWP is it, it's kind of a what have you done for me lately? And I'm not discrediting what you said whatsoever. I think he's been very good for the team. But I think he served his purpose, especially in the absence of others. Uh, you know, one thing you have to look at is he hasn't scored since the Real Salt Lake game at the beginning of October, and people will kind of look and go, well, you know, that's not too far long ago. It's over a month, and it's eight matches, and it's only going further. And that was against the RSL. Like, all due respect against the RSL, it, it wasn't what they wanted it to be. And since then, it's been all the, the normal characters that you would imagine, right? Like Danny Mazowski, who came over from Reno at the beginning of the season, you know, he's starting to figure out what Bob Bradley wants of him. I mentioned how good I thought that the central midfield has been under Latif Blessing. You know, the, all, the guys that are benefiting from all of that are their strikers up top. And so, with all due respect to Bradley Wright Phillips, is he a wild card? Absolutely. But I think you can make the same argument for Danny Mazowski. You know, you can make the same argument for some of the other boys coming off the bench. It's, for me, it just comes down to LAFC being LAFC. It's the team that, no matter who's in there, that if it's BWP, if it's Danny Mazowski, of course, in the absence of Carlos Vela, and now that he's back, they, they found him again. They're going to do what they're going to do, or at least try and do it in the manner they want to. You know that you're going to get a bunch of numbers thrown at you. You know, Jordan Harvey is the outside back position. I, I said this early on this season. He still is not my favorite for them at the outside left back position, moving Eddie Segura from left over there and tuck, tucking Tristan Blackman on the back line. But they're getting the job done. Is it pretty? No. But the most important thing for them is all the players in front of them. You know, Cifuentes in the middle, the, you know, the Ecuadorian, which he's going to be an influential figure. He's starting to check those boxes. 
Atuesta isn't at his best. That's probably my biggest concern for that squad because he is the one who controls every single movement for this team. Still think he is the most important piece outside of Carlos Vela. And, again, keeping everybody healthy. This team is going to throw numbers at you. There's going to be high tempo. They're going to press you. They're going to create a boatload of chances. But does that entire package come together against the Cruz Azul team that, as we know historically, Daniel, has just knocked so many impressive MLS squads off? And League MX team is as well. You know, coming in, I said that Cruz Azul outside of Club America would be in the final. Yep. I remember that prediction, and I'll tell you right now. You never know what could happen. We could have a surprise. We could have uh, your prediction coming true. And it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. Uh, We all know that uh, those two quarterfinal dates are going to be December 15th and the 16th. Um, We don't know who's going to play on which date. Olympia, um, you know, like you said, things have changed for Olympia since that start. I mean, they were really on a roll. I mean, to see them go into Montreal at the Olympic Stadium – and to steal a 2-1 result, and both goals are away goals, so those are going to count for this second leg uh, for uh, Olympia. Do you see them really threatening Montreal? you believe Montreal can find a way to get away goals in this one? I think Montreal, can they find a way? Yes. Will they? No. I don't see enough camaraderie out of this team yet. I think everybody has been so quick to jump on Thierry Henry throughout his managerial tenure. And obviously we are in a business of results and I respect that. But when you look at this team for Montreal, what, what they went through at the beginning of the season, what they're capable of, I do think that their ceiling is higher than what it's at. The problem is, is their performances haven't been there. You do have to also understand that coming down the stretch for their results, I mentioned, you know, limping into the playoffs, and I put it kindly. Dude, look at the last six matches who they've had to play. They've had to play a national team that has real belief behind their, their, oh, yeah. their squad right now. You know, Orlando City, NYCFC, I just made the argument for them. Of course, Philadelphia Union, you know, they beat D.C. United over the weekend, and that's great. But, you know, you do it in not really that impressive fashion and against a D.C. United team that, look, they've had their own issues this year as well. So the, the results that they've gotten recently – haven't been impressive whatsoever. And you're doing it, as you mentioned, against an Olympia team where I still think that the belief that's within that squad, now, mind you, they're, they're basically, what, 60, 70% way through their season, if I'm not mistaken. I think they're on, like, match day eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, they're about 70% away through their season. That team hasn't lost in a while. And, and those sometimes, like, I remember watching the Motagua match uh, maybe two or three weeks ago. Motagua still for my money, and we're seeing them in CONCACAF League, a defensive team that is always going to be one of the better Central American defensive squads. But Olympia, offensively, you thought they might have been better, but they didn't concede was the most important thing. And the Olympia team of past, they might have scored five, but they could have given up four, right? And I think defensively, they've gotten better. That's why I think when it comes to the matchup against Montreal, that I don't see it happening. I think the lead sits there just fine. I'll even go to say this. If this was a one-legged match, I would still put my hat with Olympia based upon what I've seen out of them. Because even though there was that nil-nil against Motagua that I mentioned, they smacked them 2-1 about a week and a half ago. You know, they, they ruined, absolutely ruined Managua. I think it was like on three days rest, which again, we're going back about 10 days. But 
I think they've done everything that they need to, and I think they're in prime position. Again, the seating on that side is, is always going to be NYCFC Tigres, so you wonder how that plays out. No, I know. That's going to be the most interesting one because I know they got that late goal in second half stoppage time at Red Bull Arena. Um, we all know Tigris will not take lightly NYCFC, but still, though, there's something that says in the back of your head that NYCFC, the way they've been going on throughout this entire whole season with this pandemic situation, and then finally getting those results to get into a good playoff position, and possibly, as you've said, they could be the surprise to get into the final. How interesting would that be to see them surprising and scaring the rest of the league in MLS as well as this region in CONCACAF? Yeah, you know, it's, you don't want to say that, that this season deserves an asterisk, right, because of all of the variables that are coming back around and things that we've discussed in previous seasons. But, but it is an interesting one, and I think, I think they can definitely turn heads for sure. I still wonder, regardless of what my personal opinions are on the performances of teams, I still look back, Daniel, to, again, and I mentioned it at the beginning of this, that recognize the fact that the Mexican teams are going to have about two and a half, three weeks off. When you don't play Mm -hmm. a match in that time frame, that's a big difference. I mean, that is a massive difference. And even though it's at the end of the season, if guys are looking to go on holiday and that's not going to be the case here. They're going to keep them in camp. They're going to keep them around. Because of all the COVID issues, they're going to be quarantined. So you're removing them from their everyday lives. You're removing the ability to go play matches. Now that the script has been flipped, what does that look like against MLS squads that have a real belief with themselves, like NYCFC? You know, LAFC earlier this year, myself included, their first, you know, going back to their performance against Leon, their first game was abominable. And that was putting it politely. But we saw that the second game was exactly what you expected at LAFC. And then from there, and the rest of the season went, you know, it's rotational, it's injuries, and that's basically what they had to deal with. But once again, come the end of the season, you're not looking at the team of 2019 that was breaking records, scoring all these goals, who stumbled out of the playoffs. You're looking at the team that's going, hey, we're finally getting to where we want to be. Everybody's getting fresh. Let's go after this thing. So I think there's so many storylines that it's fun to look at. Um, you know, no disrespect to the NYCFC Tigres match for sure. But I think that outside of the Atlanta United game, and I'm sure everybody in Georgia is going, what the heck, um, given the way that their season's gone. But outside of that match, I, I think there's so many storylines. There's so much fun things that can go on. There's so many fun things that will go on. I would love to see NYCFC knock off Tigres. I would love to see LAFC knock off Cruz Azul, and I want to see LAFC play Club America on that left side of the bracket to get into the final. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I cannot wait to get this whole situation restarted and finished up. Once again, the quarterfinals will begin on December 15th, and then uh, a second day of quarterfinals on the 16th of December semifinals we played on December 19th and then the one all final will be on December the 22nd. This will be a busy man finishing up what he got started. Devin, I know you're busy right now. Get back home. Get back to your family. Thank you so much for coming on again and I'll definitely talk to you down the road. Take care. Anytime, brother. Thank you. Speak soon.
All right, see you soon. Devin Kerr, once again, analyst for USL Championship, US Open Cup, CONCACAF events like the champ, like the CONCACAF League and the CONCACAF Champions League. Um, next guest, this was recorded. Uh, wasn't able to come on live tonight, but that's okay. He was also supposed to be on the NPSL Soccer Show. That didn't happen. That's okay because I understood uh, with the business that he is a part of. But all I can tell you is this is that this is a man who has passion for this game. This is a man who believes in what he says. And, of course, he is the one of the owners, but the owner, of the Tulsa Athletic Club in the National Premier Soccer League. Ladies and gentlemen, may I introduce to you Mr. Sonny D'Alessandro, the owner of the Tulsa Athletic of the MPSL. Welcome back to the American Soccer Show. Daniel Feuerstein here as we talk about anything and everything involving American soccer. Joining me right now, right, excuse me, joining me right now uh, is a gentleman who is a part of the uh, National Premier Soccer League as a club owner, all the way over in Oklahoma, deep down in the city of Tulsa. I have Mr. Sonny Del Sandro as he is the owner of the Tulsa Athletic who joins me tonight on a special show. Sonny, welcome to the show. Good evening, sir, and how hope you and your family are doing well and staying safe and strong. Yeah, we're good. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Uh, gentleman, not a, uh, something I'm usually called, but yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you here. So just to ask us, I always ask this with brand new uh, guests coming on to the show, what made you love this sport, and why did you get involved in it the way you have? Yeah, that's a really good question, because I think you, when you ask something like that, you're going to get a, a variety of really great answers. But, you know, for me, um, I, I found it at a really early age. So my, my babysitter, when I was, I mean, literally like two or three years old, her dad had started one of the first soccer clubs in Tulsa, so... We're dribbling up in, in, the, in the backyard, back and forth, back and forth. Um, and, and so uh, the game found me really early. And at, in the late 70s, early 80s, the NASL had the Tulsa Roughnecks in town. So, you know, I had something in my backyard that was really unique um, in that we had an NASL team and, and players who played overseas. But, you know, I, I think the, the real answer is probably that there's something beautiful about it that brings people together, right? You can be in a, uh, a taxi cab in any part of Europe, and if you can rattle off something about, you know, Stal Bucharest when you're in Romania, like you're into a conversation already. Um, and for me personally, you know, it probably kept me out of a hell of a lot of trouble growing up, too. It was something that kind of gave me some focus. And so I've always felt that I have a debt of gratitude to the game, and I, you know, I probably I've, I've committed to spending the rest of my life trying to repay that debt. So uh, happy, happy to do it. But yeah, I, I think just the fact that it brings people together, and that it has served as a mechanism for keeping me out of a hell of a lot of trouble, is would be the the, the short answer. And, you know, obviously those older, early NHL days, you had the Tulsa Roughnecks. I had the New York Cosmos back in those days. A lot of fun to watch. Uh, didn't see Pele in my time, but obviously uh, to watch all these games being played in these uh, 
uh, NFL stadiums, college football stadiums. It must have been a real fun time to watch some of the, breath, the, the best and the brightest coming over from Europe to uh, perform in front of you uh, over there in Tulsa. Yeah, I mean, Tulsa was really, really unique in that we're, we're a small market uh, when you talk about the scale that other uh, of the other cities that had teams. So we didn't have NBA or we, we knew that we were a market that was never going to get a, a top-level professional sport. So Tulsa's just gravitated towards it. And I think we were third and fourth in attendance, you know, usually uh, – you know, year in, year out. You know, you have the Cosmos. I think Seattle got a big crowd. Chicago got a decent crowd. But, you know, Tulsa was right in there. So it, it was just this thing that came to town, and, you know, it was what there was to do. They, people would pack out Skelly Stadium, and, yeah, we had these international players, and we a lot of them stayed behind and started clubs. And, you know, there's been some really great players that have come out of Tulsa and some really great, great soccer people. But, yeah, it was just a really unique sort of perfect storm kind of thing where some few few gentlemen from the oil business were like, hey, let's have some shits and giggles with a soccer team and lose a couple of million <laughs> uh, here and there, you know, bringing something to the community. And it, it, it there's still remnants of that of that, that bygone era that you can see if you look closely in the soccer community of Tulsa. So... Yeah, it was a really, really cool thing. I, mean, I, I was a little bit young, but being that I'm a soccer nerd, like I've kind of gotten able to go back and relive it through friendships with, you know, Victor Moreland, Billy Kasky, Allen, the late Alan Woodward, just meeting those guys that stuck around and having them tell you the tales of the, the old days is, is um, you know, it's, that's great for anyone who's a big soccer fan. Yep. And uh, we'll fast forward a little bit. Uh, obviously, uh, you run the family business, uh, a restaurant after your own name, of course, Delisandro's. What, what type of food do you serve there, and uh, how great do you get people that keep coming in, come, going out, coming back again uh, for your restaurant, and what type of cuisine do you sell? Do you serve? Yeah, no, yeah, no so my dad... My dad started the business in 1990, and it's all my my great grandmother's Southern Italian um, food. So, yeah, I mean it's it's nothing complicated, you know, Southern Italian food. Where uh, my family's from Basilicata, it was sort of where the heel meets the arch. That would be that region right there. So, um, you know, spicy, like I said, rustic. Nothing too complicated. It's not like Northern Italian food where it's a little bit a little bit more technique is involved. So, yeah, it's. It, it's a fun, it's a fun business. I, I jokingly tell people, you know, I make about eight thousand dollars a year, but I've only got to work ninety hours a week to do it. So, um, I think that's just sort of the, the nature of the restaurant industry. But yeah, it's it's provided me and my family with a living for the better part of thirty years. So, another another great mechanism for forming lifelong friendships and uh, being an active part of the community. And then, of course, as we fast forward, 1994, the FIFA World Cup comes to our nation. Uh, the biggest soccer party in the history of uh, of this sport comes to the U.S., and then MLS comes in two years later in 1996. What was it about the World Cup that gravitated you to watch even more? All these international superstars back in the day 
uh, from Brazil, Colombia, um, obviously no England, but a lot of like for Italy and Germany and uh, seeing our players in the United States national team, men's national team, going out there and performing. Yeah, I mean that was a, that, that was a, a big big moment. Um, you know, I was already a super big soccer nerd when that happened. So I was let's see ninety four. I would have been fifteen. Um, but growing up, you know, I would watch soccer shots made in Germany when I could with Toby Charles. So you know, I, I and anytime any of my friends' dads went to Europe, they would bring me back like the the, the local soccer magazine. I mean, in French and German and whatever. And you know, I would learn the clubs that way. So. By the time I was 16 or 17 and the World Cup came, I was such a huge fan of the game already. Uh, and we have some family in Chicago, so I was able to go to the, the World Cup opener, Germany, Bolivia, uh, in Chicago. I, we saw Germany, Spain there as well. So, yeah, you know, that was my first taste as a young adult of being around the game at that level because it didn't really exist that way in the United States. Um, you know, we had the APSL at the time, or just before that, the A-League, and getting the, a, a taste of those world-class players in the United States, I don't know, it, you, when it was done, it kind of, there was this assuring feeling at the time, I think, of why couldn't we have something here, like we just brought all the players. They played these games in packed stadiums. Um, like, we have the infrastructure to have a wonderful league. Like, So I, I always thought when they, when they closed the books, and it was a painful one for Italians, obviously, because we went out in penalties in the final. But um, I think, actually, Baggio's penalty is scheduled to orbit the Earth. I think it's next month, actually. But, no, you know, it, there was this air of, possibility when it when it concluded it was like yeah we should a, a league would work here and so yeah I, I think it was a, a great time for the game here because we had just pulled off a really really amazing event and we had a league that was you know on the horizon coming so yeah it was a really exciting pocket of you know three or four years for soccer in this country in that 94 through 96 period I agree with you there. I mean, that was a wonderful time. I remember watching it uh, on television. Actually, I was down in Florida um, with some friends, and we were able to go to see Mexico-Ireland. That was a great game. And uh, just amazing to watch. Even though Mexico beat Ireland 2-0, the the celebration, the party was awesome afterwards. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that was the group of death, right? That was the group with Norway, Italy, Mexico, and Ireland. Everyone finished on four points, right? Yep, yep. With everyone had everyone had equal goal difference too, which is wild. Yep. That was absolutely yeah. a fun time. So here you are, running your family's business, a great Southern Italian cuisine. Uh, everyone tells us going crazy. You have this lovely fetish for American soccer and for the for the sport in general. What made you decide to create your own club and at the same time why did you want to put it in the National Premier Soccer League? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, sometimes I ask that self, I ask it to myself still. Um, no, uh, yeah, so, 
when the NASL died off, like there had been a few iterations of teams called the Roughnecks and this and that. I, I played for a couple of them, and I played professionally for a few years, and um, it was just the, the timing was 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 right. There was an old minor league decrepit baseball stadium that hadn't been occupied by anyone in about three or four years. The bones were still good there, so. I got with a, a childhood friend of mine who's the other owner of the club, Dr. Kern, and um, said, "Hey, what, what do you think about what do you think about doing this?" And his, we had also obviously have the meeting with his wife involved as well. She said, "Well, you know, if this is if, if it beats you getting a fucking motorcycle, if this is your midlife crisis move, so sure, go for it." And you know, we, we did a launch, and it was well-received, and I think our first year we averaged about a little over 3,500 fans a game, which in, in 2013 was a pretty significant uh, attendance number in the United States soccer standing. We were like 33rd or 34th, something like that, and number one of all the amateur clubs, you know, ahead of Chattanooga, Detroit City, Des Moines Menace, you know, so we really did this this crazy thing and it was all kind of tied to connectivity with our community I mean we had to have been one of the first clubs in the country in 2013 where being in the food industry I was like I'll call all my local food truck homies and have them park next to the field in the outfield because with a baseball field there's a uh, part of the surface that's not utilized and we weren't playing any baseball there or plan to ever do that again so we turned that area into, like, local craft beers, local food. You know, we just wanted the scene to be this Tulsa-centric thing. Um, I've got some homies that are, like, a uh, like a local graffiti group. So they came and just tagged the outfield wall and did some magnificent, uh, like, club-centric art. And, you know, we just wanted it to feel like when you walked in the place that everyone owned it, it was for Tolsons, by Tolsons, and that we were going to beat the hell out of whoever came in that night. Like, you were going to leave with some good Tulsa food, some good Tulsa beer, and three points. And the other team leaves with their tail between their legs. So I think that was, you know, what we wanted to do and what we were able to accomplish with with that. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the market lacked a, a club, a good club that it deserved, and we wanted to kind of try and fill that void and provide that through understanding who we think Tolsons are and what they might like. And I think we I think we did a pretty good job of identifying that. Sound like it. It looks pretty good so far. Um, at the time I remember Tulsa Athletic, uh, you know, your your team, you qualified for open cup tournaments. You've always had those solid games in the first round, but then when you get to the second, you always had to take on at the time it was a the bringing back of the Tulsa Roughnecks name. Now they've changed to FC Tulsa. I don't know how yeah. you feel about that from the from that uh, side that plays in USL sure. Championship League. But um, you know, I remember w- every once in a while, whenever you get a game on YouTube or now with ESPN broadcasting all the Open Cup games, you're always a hard battle to face against, especially against the other Tulsa professional side. It's just I say to myself, if you could just get a little more luck, you might get yeah. yourself on a run here. 
Yeah, so we, we played we played Oklahoma City Energy. In 2014, we, we drew the Oklahoma City Energy in the second round. And they we knew that a pro team was coming the next year, and it was the first year for Oklahoma City. And they actually owned the Tulsa team, or a portion of the Tulsa team. So that was a huge game for us, just in the sense that it was an opportunity to kind of take our flag and be like, hey, we're not just an amateur team. We're not just going to be run over. But open cups when you play pro teams are so difficult in those early rounds because we'd had our guys in for a week, and I think they they were like in on their sixth or seventh game of the season. So, you know, they had been through camp. They were in the season. They were playing games already. And I think we had like maybe one weekend of games under our belt. So, um, yeah, we haven't got to square up with the Tulsa team yet. You know, obviously, because of um, the way the original team entered the market, we were kind of blindsided. We'd had a big first year. We won't, We would have loved to have partnered with some people that wanted to move things forward together. And it's just not always like that, you know, in business. Sometimes people look at a good idea. They want to say, hey, we'll copy this, sprinkle a little bit of money on on it, we'll move forward, but no one really reached out, and that doesn't always hold true with the sport of soccer, so it was a tumultuous relationship when it was um, when it was Tulsa Roughnecks. Now, the new owners, uh, we have a good relationship with, but at, at the end of the day, like, my responsibility in my position and to our supporters and fans is to, um, you know, have the best club that we can be. Like, I can't spend too much time really worrying about or looking at what they're doing. We're just trying to, you know, stay true to what our identity is, and I think it's pretty strong, and um, obviously it's gotten a lot of attention in the last the last six months or the last year, but um, I, I like the Kraft brothers that own FC Tulsa. I think what they've done is very respectable. I think that they're going to be good moving forward, but at the end of the day, when people ask me about their team, I say, you know, it doesn't really have a lot to do with me. You know, I, I'm we own, a, we own a little club. We're going to continue to be a cool little club that, you know, hopefully people want to follow and support, um, get down with. And after that, like, if we play them, you know, it's obviously going to be a difficult game but uh, for the smaller amateur side. But, you know, if we uh, win or lose, I'll probably be the, the, drunkest, the drunkest man in Tulsa that night. So that's, that's for sure. Who knows? Might be might – be, uh, would be interesting to be able to clip clip the other Tulsa team for sure. That that would be the uh, the dream come true for the little club, right? All I ask is you don't go streaking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, no, I, there's no guarantees on that. There's no guarantees. If we were to get, if we were to get a, a victory in a local derby that was a cup game, I could literally make zero guarantees. I've got a couple people around town who I've given bail money to. They know what to do, and from there. From there, it's history. So, um, no, you know, derbies are important. I think the country does a really, really poor job of promoting of basically the only mechanism we have where clubs from different tiers of the U.S. soccer structure, if you can even call it a structure, um, face off against each other. So um, I think the Open Cup and Paul Marsteller are heading things that in the right direction. I'd like to think, you know, we spoke at our owners meeting, uh, 
in Nashville in 2019, and I think he said a lot of the right things. But, you know, people love the Open Cup. It's it's fascinating. It, it gets some David and Goliath scenarios. And, you know, the pro-rail proponents like myself, we want to see what it looks like when teams from different tiers face off. And there are upsets in it. It doesn't – there are no guarantees in this game. And I think the one major thing that I tell people all the time is where we let ourselves down in the United States of America is we don't allow the ball to decide where teams are, teams are or where they should be. We allow the checkbook to do it. And because of that, I think ratings are not great. TV ratings aren't great at any level. I mean, there's so many storylines that are better with a healthy – uh, system like the rest of the world has. So, sorry, it was a little bit of a tangent there, but that's fine. <laughs> no, listen, look, that's fine. I mean, look, we're all passionate about the game. I mean, you know, we yeah. all have our beliefs. We all believe. It, it's not for me to decide, you know, what's right or what's wrong. It's what's in your heart about the game that you love so much. Just like the same thing for me. I love this game. I love watching this game. I mean, I wish I was more involved in it as a, if I was able to play it. But you know what? Though, I mean, I caught it when I did, and. I love everything. I love everything about it, and I want to see the United States be successful in it. You know, whether it be internally, you know, with the, the representative clubs that you support or you, you cover and whatever, or you know, when it comes to a league title or an Open Cup title, uh, hopefully an uh, international club title like the Concacaf Champions League. Uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, we all know the two best leagues, or should I say, uh, you know, continental titles, club-wise, is basically in Europe and in South America. And, you know, when something can improve and become better, then we'll get there. But you shouldn't apologize for the heart and the passion you have for the sport and what you believe should be what's best for this sport in this country because I'm not disagreeing with you. Yeah, thanks. And, you know, I, I think you said something there that's important. Like, you might have... You picked the game up a little bit late, but, you know, kudos to you for recognizing your love for it and being able to connect with it the way that you're connecting with it, which is, you know, having a podcast that people listen to, giving people a platform to state their opinions and beliefs, and, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm always open to hearing why people believe what they believe. It may not end up working for me, but at least with that approach, the, that openness gives me the possibility to learn, you know, so uh, cheers to you for, you know, having something where people like myself can come on and talk and say, hey, here's why I feel like I feel. If if this sounds cool, then, you know, here's a way that you can support it. Like, you know, give our federation some hell if you don't like this current system or, you know, if you don't, say that that guy's a clown and I'll tell you why. (laughs) no. Yeah, I, I think I think it's cool that you've been able to connect to it. That's again just one of the things that's so great about the game is there's a multitude of levels that you can approach it with where you can be involved. So I think I think that it's great that you found yours and that um, you know you found something that makes you happy doing it. Um, hell, I, I'm I'm down for talking soccer anytime. Absolutely, why not? Um, but anyway, when did you find your love with the National Premier Soccer League? Where did you find uh, that was the niche you needed to start your own club in Tulsa Athletic? Yeah, so one of the things that's really great about the, the NPSL is it's just a less restrictive platform. Um, you know, USL2, you give up your brand, basically. 
you know, your, your trademarks, like they, they they get all of that stuff. Which for me, that that doesn't that doesn't work with what we're what we're trying to do and what we're trying to build. Um, there was just more freedom, even with building a roster. You know, there's the other option at the time. Well, I say USL, so the other option at the time when we came in was the PDL, and you can only have a certain amount of players over the age of 23 because they want to uh, sort of handcuff it to being a developmental league. It's like, well, you know, I don't, I don't, if I've got 10, 29 year olds that are, are from my area, like I want, I want to be able to afford them the opportunity to continue to go out and do something that they love as well. Not, you know, come up against some rule that says we can only have a finite amount of players under or above a certain age. Like that's, it was just a least restrictive league at the time. And I believe it probably still is. Um, so for, you know, entrepreneurial, business-minded people that want to grow their brand and build something, I think that the freedoms that the league allows its members are more conducive to what your expression is. Um, you know, and that's my opinion, but if you go around and you look at the other leagues, I, I think that they either come off a bit more disorganized or sterile, and I, I, maybe this is a little bit forward memory of me, but um, you know, I, I just, for me, it was like this league really allows you to express yourself. I mean, I, I make this comparison. I've done it in a few interviews before, so I'm sorry if you're getting a little bit of a secondhand study quote, but you know, we, we, as, we at a time have had teams like Detroit City, who you know, represent a, a number of great things that's important to them in the city of Detroit, um, and some really like on edge stuff. Some some people might think. And then you know, we also have we have the Bucks Mont Torch, which is a, a, a faith based club. So uh, there's just a contrast of, of people that enter the business room at, at board meetings and at, at owners meetings is fantastic. And I don't think that you get that wide range of it in any other league. So for us, it's like. Yeah, we can run more wide open in this league and on this platform than we could anywhere else. And, um, that's why it was attractive to us. That's why we stuck with the league. That's why I wanted to be on the board. That's why I've been a board member for uh, four, four or five years now. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, when I see teams on Twitter that are starting to pick up some momentum, I like, I, I'm excited to reach out to them because, like, hey, if you're looking to go to the next step, like let me help you. Let me let me show you what I've learned over the past seven or eight years. And if it's useful to you, great. I mean, I have some what not to do. It's helpful, great. Um, and if you're looking to make that jump to a new platform, this would be my recommendation. So, yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a, a great platform. And thank you for featuring some of our owners and myself on on the show. If I can ask you this question, and, and I mean, I understand exactly where you're coming from, how you want promotion or relegation to come into the U.S. Uh, yeah. platform for American soccer, and you know, I and like I've said to many people, um, I would like to see that too. But you know, I think there's like maybe one or two things that need to be fixed before we can yeah. make that move, because you know, I think you've seen already, uh, we've seen uh, Reno, Nevada, 1868 Reno. Uh, over yeah, in the USL Championship and St. Louis FC USL Championship, both are shutting down right now. Um, and we've also seen um, Charleston Battery 
deciding to, you know, get out of their home because um, they've decided to go not play in their own home. They've decided to give up the land for development, and they're going to play somewhere else. So, and speaking with one of your um, fellow board members, Damon Gochner, Denton Diablos, great guy, you're a great guy. You know, some of your uh, fellow uh, board members I've spoken with, uh, talking about this game, why they want to be in the NPSL, and Damon wants to build his own stadium. Is that somewhere down the road, the next plans or the next phase for Tulsa Athletic is to either um, fix up your current situation of where you are right now um, and uh, try and make it more soccer-specific-like? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, so there's a couple things that you touched on there. The first one is, you know, this this game is, is hard right now in the United States, and I think that there needs to be a more global look at that, of, of why is it so hard? Like, why are these teams struggling? Um, because, you know, the, the player salaries at, the, at those levels aren't fantastic, um, and the P&L sheets for a lot of pro clubs are, I would say, you know, there's these big sticker front. There's this big sticker tag. This, 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 you know, you're looking at. I think USL is up to what ten or twelve million now. Uh, but these P and L sheets paint a little bit of a different picture. Um, so I think it's almost the responsibility of U.S. Soccer and the Federation to, you know, look at why, like basically where we're at, and what kind of structure can be implemented where. The financial struggle struggles to be alleviated a little bit. You know, we've allowed people to own leagues essentially, and team owners to own leagues. Whereas you don't see that in other countries. You know, you, the idea of a man owning, like a, a man or a company owning the English Premier League, seems preposterous when you put it in those terms. And yet, in the United States, we do that, and we see these teams consistently come up against these financial hurdles that don't exist in other countries. They exist in other countries. They're just um, a little bit more drastic here. So I, I think that there are some discussions that need to go on between our federations, the people that own leagues, um, you know, the MLS, USL, um, all these things to say, hey, like, what sort of system can be implemented where this starts to work and make money, where the MLS isn't having capital calls, where... 1860 Reno, which is a club that works on a very tight budget. Um, you know, I've, I've spoken with Ian and Chris, and Chris there's a couple of their coaches in the past couple of years, you know, about a, just about a player and, um, that, I, that I work with a little bit. And, you know, things are, things are tough. Like, they're not, they're not putting guys on $100,000 a year contract. They're, they're just trying to get by. So I think that it's almost the responsibility of the federation to say, why is, why is this so hard? Where are we at realistically? You know, without throwing these huge price tags out on things, and how can we help fix it? Because it's only getting worse. I mean, the, the, the amount of money that the, the next round of MLS franchises is going to be is, I mean, Charlotte paid, what, 325 and you know we're going to see what three, three seventy-five, what five hundred million for an MLS franchise, and the money doesn't work. So when you look at that in the long term, like that's only damaging the game. It's like at some point you've got to hit the pause button and say, hey, before we keep selling this stuff, let's look 
let's let's really dig in here and see why it's not working because it's just a house of cards if you're if the finances aren't working and you're offsetting that by adding new teams into into those finances to offset that that that's that's a problem. The second part you touched on, which is uh, a really great question, is uh, stadium for us. Yeah, it's obviously something that we need to get done and that we want to get done. Um, you know, we play in such an open space right now, which is, I guess, probably ideal for uh, being in the middle of a pandemic. But, yeah, we, we have some designs down the road. I can't go into it too much, but uh, we, we have some designs down the road that we're working on and wanting to get a little space for ourselves that, um, you know, we can call home and have it be multi-purpose and, you know, keep it a busy place where, uh, the community can use it, and it's uh, a place that we can we can call home. It, it was really hard because you don't see a lot of clubs at our level who had what we had to start. I mean, when we started, we had an 11,000 seat stadium with lockers, a front office, uh, a workout room, you know, place for all of our landscape equipment, laundry. We had the whole thing from the beginning, mind you. It was a big duct tape job, but we entered into the NPSL with that. Um, you know, while a lot of other people were renting high schools, we looked and saw a bigger picture and thought, you know, Tulsa needs something that's great. And so we went in really big. Um, our business model is, or our business mantra, rather, is kind of like, let's just keep hitting singles. Well, the first time we swung the bat, it was for, we swung for the fences and we connected, we connected pretty well. So. You know, we're coming from a place where we've had all of that before, lost it, and now we're looking at, like, what is our place? Like, what's appropriate for us? Because obviously 11,000 seats is too big for us right now. You know, what is a what is getting a 2,500-seat kind of modular stadium look like? You know, something that could possibly be expanded upon and more successful there. So, um, yeah. I think we, we, we have some plans for some things. Like I said, I can't go too much into detail because we're just working with some people on the deal. We can't really announce anything, but I would certainly loop you in if we get closer to an appropriate date to do so. But I think there's a real lack of um, small stadiums for soccer in this country. You know, you drive around any small town in the United States and turn left on Main Street to the high school and you'll see a high school football stadium that seats 1,200 people uh, that's not used for nine months of the year. And for how popular our game is, I think that I, I love the idea of there being 1,200-seat soccer stadiums. Uh, Phoenix Rising Stadium, just as sort of a, you know, a pop-up, cost-effective way to create a soccer environment is one that every club in the in the country should try and scale and base some sort of model off of. Um, but, yeah, that, that's the very long-winded answer to both of your points, I think. That's okay. All answers are good answers. Finally, for me, you know, you're in a tough division. Well, first things first, you're in the Southern Region. In the Heartland Conference, so you got to take on clubs like Club Atletico, St. Louis, Dallas City FC, The Demise... Little Rock Rangers and Ozark FC. How difficult has that uh, division uh, conference been for you in the southern region of the NPSL? Uh, I mean, all good clubs, all well-run clubs. You 
know there's no gimmies in our conference. Is. But you want that. You know, I think that's been one of the things is, is when you have a good conference and there's a lot of parity, whoever comes out of that conference is tried and true, battle-tested, ready for the next round. So, um, yeah, unfortunately, the last two years, whoever's been the champion has run into Miami FC, which was a, a uh, dumbed-down NASL roster, um, and they were obviously playing the national championship two times and then moved on to USL. But, uh, yeah, a great conference, great guys to work with. You know, the, the battles are, are certainly intense, but at the same time, I could pick up the phone to any one of the members of our conference and have a, a great conversation. We're all, we're all friends out on the field. So it's a great conference. Every team that's been in it has, has been in the playoffs. Um, so, you know, there's you never know what you're going to get. And, again, that's what you want. You don't want those, those lopsided games where there's this huge disparity from the top of the table to the bottom of the table. You know, anytime you look at the score sheet on a Saturday, you you scratch your head because you thought you had the results figured out. That's that's a good that's a good thing. Um, unless, unless you're unless you're tall, and then you always want the boys in green uh, coming out with the three points. But yeah, good conference, good group of guys. Hopefully, the national champion comes from our conference next year. That's that's the goal. And that is the goal. Sunny Dale Sandro, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Good luck. With the Tulsa Athletics, thank you for being who you are, and I hope you have a good evening. Thank you very much. I had a blast. Call her anytime. Take care. Sonny D'Alessandro, the owner of the Tulsa Athletic of the uh, NPSL. Great time to be with them. Uh, great show uh, interview with him. It's been fantastic. And all you can say is, is that this is a guy squeezes passion for the game in his body, squeezes it out of it, and just goes on and shows why he is a part of the game here in the United States. And being a part of the National Premier Soccer League is definitely one of those things that he loves to do. Um, so, as everyone knows, we got this coming Thursday afternoon as the United States men's national team will be back in action. And they're going to take on uh, Wales at the Liberty Stadium in Swansea. Uh, And then I just found out, actually, that they're also going to play another match on a Monday afternoon. Of course, it be 2.45 here in the States, uh, five hours difference in Europe. Uh, They're going to take on Panama at a neutral site uh, over in Austria. Uh, Not sure where that's going to be in Austria. Uh, They're going to take on Panama at a uh, neutral site. So um, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what's going to happen with these two matches. And the roster will be European-based American players playing in the Euro Leagues and everything else going forward. And it should be a fun time, time going forward. And I'll tell you, I cannot wait to have a national team match being played, being played. And absolutely great to see our national team finally getting some, uh, some meaningful matches under their belt. And you know what? Let me just say this. Um, I know I've been hard on Greg Berhalter. I know I've been very, very uh, hard against him. Uh, and like I said, I, I'm not looking to uh, belittle him. That's not my job. 
My job is to report my opinion on what's been going on with this national team, what's been going on, and uh, how they've been performed. Now, obviously, I'll be very critical in the games when they take on Mexico. Why? Very simple. Because that's the rivalry. The rivalry that everyone knows in this confederation is one of the biggest rivalries in CONCACAF. We must make sure that the U.S. men's national team are going to run the table in this confederation, regardless of its World Cup qualifying, the CONCACAF Gold Cup, or the World Cup itself, if they do face each other again in the round of 16 or any level or any round uh, higher past the group stage. This is important because what happened down in Trinidad, Tobago should never have happened at all. And we know it's not Bruce Arena. We know it's not Jurgen Klinsmann. Still, though, this whole qualification cycle has been ruined. Ruined by U.S. soccer, ruined by the pandemic and the coronavirus. Finally, we're going to get some games in for our national team. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Here's that roster for the next two matches on the November international match date on the international calendar. The three goalkeepers are Ivan Horvath, who plays at Club Bruges in Belgium. Uh, Chituri Odwenzer, Odwenzi, excuse me, at Leicester City. And Zach Steffen over at Manchester City. Of course, the former Columbus crew keeper now finally uh, getting himself out there in the Premier League um, so far. It's been pretty good. The defenders are John Brooks from Wolfsburg, Reggie Cannon from uh, Boa Vista in Portugal, Sergino Dest in Barcelona, Matt Miazga at Anderlecht, Tim Ream at Fulham, Chris Richards at Bayern Munich. Of course, he won himself a uh, UEFA Champions League title. And Anthony Robinson also with Tim Ream at Fulham. The midfielders, of course, Tyler Adams from Red Bull Leipzig in Germany. Uh, Johnny Cardoso from Internacional in Brazil. Richard Ledesma at Eidenhoven, PSV Eidenhoven. Um, Weston McKenney at Juventus. Yunus Musa from Valencia. We'll get to him in a minute. And Owen Otosoi, who plays over at Wolverhampton in England. And the strikers, the forwards, Conrad De La Fuente, who plays at Barcelona, the American from Miami area. Nicholas Gioacchini from Cannes in France. Got a big winner in the Ligue 1. Christian Pulisic, Chelsea. Uli Lianez from Hennervin. Gio Reyna, Claudio Reyna's son at Borussia Dortmund. Josh Sargent. Wetter Bremen, Sebastian Soto from Telstar in the Netherlands, and Tim Weah, football royalty at Lille in France. Now, we understand 
um, that Sargent has been pulled out of the camp. So uh, he will not be uh, involved here. These are national games. But definitely, it would be nice to see him get out there. Um, I'm not sure if it's just an injury or it's going to be something different. Maybe he was being pulled out. We don't know uh, if there is an injury or not. But this kid who's playing in Valencia was born in New York City, Mr. Yunus uh, Musa. Of course, he's also living in England. Uh, I believe he has English parents as well. He was born in New York City. So the United States has every right to claim him. He was born in our country, moved out, lived in New York City. So we'll see what happens if he does go on to take on Wales, uh, maybe also Panama, possibly both. We'll have to wait and see what he can do uh, if he can uh, go out there and strut his stuff, so to say. I can't wait to see what this kid is able to do. It should be exciting to watch these matches. Both of them will be on Fox Sports 1, of course, at 2.45 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, once again, it will be a uh, 5.45, 6.45. Uh, actually, no, it will be a little bit later because it's a five-hour difference. So to the theory, to the four, five, 7.45 over in Europe. So it should be exciting. It should be a lot of fun. And we'll see what happens with these two. Of course, join me and my panel for post-game shows of these two international friendlies. Should be exciting. Should be a lot of fun. I cannot wait to see what's going to happen when the United States takes on the Welsh, and then they move over to Austria as they're going to take on Panama. It's going to be exciting to watch. Exciting to watch. I cannot wait to see what's going to happen here. It should be a lot of fun to watch. Now it's time to talk about the New York Red Bulls. What a big match that was against Toronto FC. Not only did they win the match, New England Revolution loses their match. So the, for the Philadelphia Union, they do win the 2020 Supporters' Shield. Toronto FC, the party gets spoiled. But for sure, for sure, Toronto remains in second place. New England loses. Red Bulls win. Nashville wins. And with Nashville's victory, with the same amount of points and same amount of same amount of points per game with both New England and the Red Bulls, Red Bulls will go up to sixth. Nashville will go to seventh, and New England will drop from sixth to eighth. Now, New Nashville and New England will host the play-in games at their stadiums. Red Bulls will start properly in the quarterfinals of the Eastern Conference, and. They don't have to worry about playing an extra game. But uh, you know they want to look for some revenge in that MLS's back tournament at the Walt Disney World Resort. So we'll have to wait and see what's going to happen there. It should be a fun thing to see. But those goals by both Tom Barlow and Brian White, it's a pretty good start so far for those two. We know Tom Barlow was in perfect position to score some goals. He only converted three times. Brian White so far has done the job, and he has found ways, Brian White, to put the ball on the back of the net. And he's done so very, very well. Of course, Toronto pulled one back. 
But it was Ryan Mera all the way who found his rhythm in goal, found a way to make sure that he kept that ball out of the net. Now, the way this opening 45 got started, I thought the Red Bulls were going to run rough shot all over Toronto FC. Remember 2009? Remember the five goals to nil victory over Toronto at the last game at the Meadowlands, the last game at Giants Stadium until they moved to Red Bull Arena? Seeing this New York Red Bull side trouncing Toronto FC five goals to nil. I said it. I said on Twitter, it looks like it's going to be a a repeat of the Meadowlands Massacre of 2009. Didn't happen, but still, though, the way they started and the way they played in the opening 45, I thought it was going to be like that. But now the Red Bulls have at least um, a week plus to relax, take it easy, and check out what they need to do. when they take on the Columbus crew over at Crew Stadium in Columbus, Ohio. And we'll get to that after the international breaks are coming in. Of course, World Cup qualifying continues for South American qualifying. And then we'll turn the page to 2021, and hopefully we can get back to Red Bull Arena and have some fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that'll do it for tonight's show. Uh, I want to thank my guests for tonight. I want to thank, of course, Devin Kerr. Analyst for the U.S. Open Cup, USL Championship, and CONCACAF match events. And, of course, Sonny D'Alessandro. He is the owner of the Tulsa Athletic from the NPSL, National Premier Soccer League. It should be exciting, and it should be a lot of fun. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thanks for listening to me tonight. And, as always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Have a good night. Take care. So long. And bye-bye for now.